This episode is brought to you by Progressive, where drivers who save by switching save nearly $750 on average. Plus, auto customers qualify for an average of seven discounts. Quote now at Progressive.com to see if you could save. Progressive Casualty Insurance and Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $744 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2022 and May 2023. Potential savings will vary. Discounts not available in all states and situations. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello there, it's Jamila Jamil. Are you by any chance listening to this podcast promo while out on a walk? If so, good for you. That's going to make both your mind and your body feel better. On my podcast, I Weigh, this month, we're going to be exploring mental health and talking to amazing guests about other things that you can do to make yourself feel better with guests like Simon Sinek from The Optimism Company, therapist Vienna Farron, comedian Neil Brennan, and more. Listen to I Weigh wherever you get your podcasts. The year is 2010 and 2011 and 2012. Which movies are we going to be talking about? Well, the ones that we think deserve to be on the AFI list. It is Unspooled's first episode of The Best of the Decade. Everybody and welcome to Unspooled. I'm Amy Nicholson. And I am Paul Shear. And this is our best of the decade episode one, where we're covering the films of 2010 to 2012. Amy, let's talk about this decade. Just like everybody else in the world, we are compiling a best of the decade movie list. And I've read a lot of articles lately, and this decade is really kind of interesting. I mean, you know, from your vantage point of, you know, reviewing films and seeing films, like what would you say this decade is? Like if you were to look at it as a whole, what do you think this decade was? Oh, wow. That's huge. You know, I mean, I can say that as a critic who, you know, started doing top 10 lists, Mm -hmm. you know, a couple years before this, when I went over my top 10 lists of the last decade, and then when I really thought about the films I would put forth as AFI films on the top of of this decade, they didn't match up that much, and I was really surprised. Yeah, you know, I think this decade, this is this is a gut, this is a gut response, and I'm curious how this will shake out. But I feel like in the last decade, we see a real sea change in what independent movies are. I guess. Yeah, I was thinking about that. Yeah. You know, I read this great article that Richard Brody wrote in the New Yorker about like the rise of mumblecore, and I think that a lot of people would assume that this decade is the decade of the Marvel movie. But that kind of already started pre-2010. You know, it, it it was Iron Man 2 is coming out in 2010. Not that it was like full born, but this is the era where I feel like we are seeing like, you know, the Joe Swanbergs or the Lynn Sheltons. That, you know, I think about The Kids Are All Right, like these other movies that are kind of coming to the mainstream or at least getting more notoriety in a way. Yeah, I mean, I think this is the era where – when 2010 starts, mm-hmm. we're getting the first real ripple signs of the fact that 
the mid-priced movie is dead. Right. You know, like at the beginning of this decade, every single studio had their Fox Searchlight, for example, and they cranked out good mid-priced movies. And those were basically the Oscar movies. You know, the, all of these movies made for like 30 to $50 million. All of them had movie stars. All of them were kind of following, for a lack of a better word, like the Weinstein Miramax model of being vaguely period PC. Right. You know, very safe with one good message. And they were all spending a lot of money on these movies that when you kind of look at the last decade, you're like, eh. Right. You know, I think the last Oscar winners going back to like the, you know, the year 2000 have been kind of mediocre because I think our indie movie circuit, our highbrow movie circuit looked a lot like that. Yeah. You know, there was this division between crowd pleasers and those films and and they're all kind of non-existent, you know? Yeah. And I think what I started to see a little bit or the change, and not to say this is always how it affected the award cycle, but there are a lot more personal films. And when those personal films work... Uh, they are really transcendent, I think. And when they are just okay, they feel so tiresome to me. And I'm not here to like name names, but you can see that a genre developed in this mumblecore world where everyone's like, well, I can do that. And for me, I always think about it like this. Like uh, when I was at UCB, which is the Upright Citizens Brigade, Everyone was doing one-person shows. There was, a, there was a time when we went away from sketch shows and improv, and everyone started doing a one-person show. And it became abundantly clear, and I'm a part of this, that not everyone had a one-person show. Not everyone is equipped to do that. I mean, there are great people out there, people like Mike Birbiglia, you know, who can put on a great one-person show. But um, it just felt like that's what people wanted, so everyone tried to make it. And I feel like that is kind of was happening, at least for me in this decade. There are some great ones, and then there are ones that are just kind of, for all the the slams that you would give of a Marvel movie, are doing that same thing with the mumblecore genre. It's like, okay, I got a house, I got conflict, and there's a bunch of white people. Let's go. <laughs> that is exactly what a Marvel movie was like also at the beginning, <laughs> yes. <laughs> I mean, yeah, like, I think that right now in 2019, we're in the most exciting time for movies that we have had since the 90s. Yeah. You know, I feel like we're really seeing this great creative flourishing. And so what has been so interesting to be going back and looking at our decade is watching that slowly evolve. Because when I look at the films that kind of start off this decade, they're fine. Like there's just a lot of fine stuff and there's not a lot of exciting stuff. Yeah. Well, do you think, and before we get into each individual year, do you think that the rise of the Netflix, you know, I know this has been a, you know, this big debate. And it, it seems kind of gone away, but it comes back every now and then with the Irishman and marriage story. Like in a weird way, it, it kind of helps elevate these, these films. Like, you know, I think there's this fear of like people won't go to the theater, but in another way, it's bringing more people to them. I think that the conversation around the Irishman in the last week has been much larger than if it came out in the theater. I don't think you'd be seeing this much conversation. I mean, I think that is really interesting because, yeah, like when I started off being a critic, I think about this a lot. I would recommend a tiny indie movie and I would think, I hope people remember this when it is finally out on video. Right. And like God only knows if they would. Like it was almost impossible to find a tiny indie movie. You know, it would take like two or three months. And so you felt like you were reviewing for the coasts, for the people who could go see something, but you weren't reviewing for the country. Right. You know, and I think I, th I would think about that a lot because I was from like Oklahoma and Texas. And I remember what it was like to read about movies that I couldn't see. And now I feel like the big change is when there is a really interesting indie movie coming out, I can write about it and it might be streaming that weekend that it comes out. Or at least it'll be up in like a, a couple weeks. Maybe yeah. it will be out and you'll have it there before you can forget. I, I've been lucky to be a part of a couple of those 
independent films that came out, you know, the day, you know, uh, you know, came out on a Tuesday in the theater and then on Friday it's on video on demand. And there is something really great about that because I think people are willing to take a risk on a movie that they're unsure of for a little bit of a cheaper price and in the in the privacy of their own home than going out to a the theater. So there are some benefits and deficits. I think we'll be wrestling with this as we're talking about the best movies of the decade. And we're going to do it a little bit differently. We're going to go year by year. Year by year. Year by year. So in our first episode, we're going to look at the years of 2010 through 2012. We are both coming to this uh, picking our favorite film, or maybe the film that we think belongs on the list, um, and then maybe some notable side ones, and give you some more little facts about that year. Because I feel like it's hard to distill a whole year of films and go like, this is the one. Because there are certain years, as I was doing my research, I was like, oh, but I want to talk about, that one doesn't belong on the list, but it's important for what it did. And I think there's a lot of that going on here. I a thousand, thousand percent agree. And I think we should start by saying what the AFI thought the top 10 films were of every year, because that is the thing that AFI does. Every year, they release a top 10 of films in alphabetical order. They're not okay. ranked. And they say that these are the films they put forth as the films that define that year. The year is 2010. has become the unofficial oh symbol of the World Cup. <laughs> Time Magazine's Person of the Year is Mark Zuckerberg. Sandra Bullock accepts her Razzie for All About Steve the night before she accepts her Academy Award for The Blind Side. The Song of the Year was TikTok by Kesha. And the Golden Raspberry went to The Last Airbender as the worst picture of the year. Wow. I, the Blind Side, I feel like, is exactly the kind of film I'm thinking of when I think of like what these mid-priced Oscar movies wore. Yeah. And they're you know? still out there. I mean, they're still going. I mean, that's Green Book. Yeah, it is Green Book. It is Green Book. At least now we're all grumbling about it. But anyways, here is what the AFI th said were the top 10 films of 2010. Alphabetical again. 127 Hours, Black Swan, The Fighter, Inception, The Kids Are All Right, The Social Network, The Town, Toy Story 3, True Grit, and Winter's Bone. Wow, that's a great list. And I think a lot of interesting films on that list. I mean, Amy, what would be your pick if you had to put a film on the AFI list, what would be the film that you would put from this year? I mean, we are, we're really kind of cuffing ourselves here by making us pick a film from this year. You know what? At first I was like, this year feels really thin to me. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I was like staring at this list and like, what on earth would I pick? I mean, I think Winter's Bone is interesting because to me, Winter's Bone in this list of 2010 is like that first kind of ripple of what I think independent film looks a lot more like now. Mm -hmm. I think the 2019 independent film is a lot like Winter's Bone and it's a lot less like the kids are all right. Right. But I've been thinking a lot. You know, we had that fantastic guest on a couple of weeks ago, Lorraine Scafaria, and she made a really big push for The Social Network. And I remember telling her, I was like, I haven't seen that movie since it came out. Right. So I rewatched The Social Network. And yes, I believe that my pick for the 2010 entrance to the AFI list is a thousand percent The Social Network because that film changed on me so much from when I first saw it. I was shocked. Really? See, that was a film that I immediately pushed aside and I wrote, this is the obvious choice. The obvious choice is this <laughs> film. But no, but Call you Call me obvious, no, Mr. Share. You know why? Because I haven't rewatched it. Like and I feel like that's the movie that people are going to gravitate towards. So you rewatching it, it to me it was a movie that I saw, everyone talked about, and then it kind of evaporated. Like it just it wasn't like, oh I watch that every year. I see it every year. But knowing that it held up is actually really interesting to me. Because that was a movie that I just 
I kind of immediately wrote off and goes, like, yes, we'll remember that because Facebook is important, but was the film as good as we enjoyed it in the, in the moment? I actually wrote it off too in 2010. This didn't even make my top 10 list in 2010. Wow. And I think I think I felt really confused about how to feel about the social network at the time. This is what I was wrestling with when mm-hmm. I rewatched it. You know, because in 2010, I had just recently gotten on Facebook. I think I've been on Facebook maybe a year and a half. Right. I didn't think it was evil yet. You know, I had I was like, oh, great. I'm connecting with my high school friends. I can spy on my cousins. That's mainly what I use it for. I don't think they listen huh. to the show. So I can say that I spy on my cousins and I try to see when they're going to stop voting for Trump. Um, but none of that was existing. None of that, none of, none of those words would have made any sense to me in 2010. And so I, I saw this movie and I was like, okay, Mark Zuckerberg is kind of like a smart asshole. And I just assumed that the bad guys in the movie were the Winklevoss twins were like the prepsters. I watched this whole movie like really against the prepsters and kind of on Mark Zuckerberg's side for taking down the rich blonde kids. And I don't think I fully appreciated what a dick he is in this movie. Honestly, you know? I was kind of like, go team Facebook. And now I now rewatching Social Network, I'm like, oh my God. Like there Peter Thiel is in this movie. There's Peter Thiel is a minor character in this movie. Just for a scene, Peter Thiel hadn't ruined the world yet. Peter right. Thiel hadn't brought down Gawker. I mean, this movie felt so much more relevant to me today. I I'm shocked by how naive I felt. Um, thinking back to who I was in 2010 watching this film. Well, I think that that's the kind of the beauty of a David Fincher film. Like David Fincher films to me. I put in the same category as a Coen Brothers film. I put that in the same category as a Kubrick film, which are, they are built to last. They are your parents' vacuum cleaners. You know, they um, they get better with age. They never stop kind of working and because there is so much mastery kind of put into it. I, I feel like Zodiac is a movie that Fincher did that really has come back in a major way. Like people talk about that movie, not in the way that they spoke about it when it came out. It And- he builds good films and oddly his more flashy films uh, like Fight Club or, or Seven, which were more poppy, I guess, um, aren't as spoken about as much as his work after that in a, in a way. Um, I Now you've kind of piqued my interest about Social Network to go back and rewatch it. Because I do remember enjoying it in the moment, but it never wanted to go rewatch it again. Yeah, I mean, I don't think I had a grip really on Mark Zuckerberg and what his effect might be, mm-hmm. you know? I was like, oh, he's just a smart asocial geek who's kind of right. mad at women. You know, like, well, like, here, here, let's listen to him talk in this film. I'm not a bad guy. I know that. When there's emotional testimony, I assume 85% of it is exaggeration. And the other 15? Perjury. Creation myths need a devil. What happens now? Sai and the others are having a stake on University Avenue. Then I'll come back up to the office and start working on a settlement agreement to present to you. They're going to settle? Oh, yeah. And you're going to have to pay a little extra. Why? So that these guys sign a non-disclosure agreement. They say one unflattering word about you in public, you own their wife and kids. I invented Facebook. I'm talking about a jury. I specialize in voir dire. Jury selection? What a jury sees when they look at a defendant. Clothes, hair, speaking style, likability. Likability. I've been licensed to practice law for all of 20 months, and I could get a jury to believe that you planted the story about Eduardo and the chicken. Watch what else. Why weren't you at Sean's sorority party that night? You think I'm the one that called the police? Doesn't matter. I asked a question, now everybody's thinking about it. You've lost your jury in the first 10 minutes. Farm animals. Yeah. 
I was drunk and angry and stupid. And blogging. And blogging. Pay them. In the scheme of things, it's a speeding ticket. Like, it is crazy to me that when I watched that scene, I was kind of really on his side the first time. Right. I was like, yeah, he was drunk. He started this thing. He created it. Everybody wants a piece of him. And now hearing his lack of empathy, I think, rattles me in a different way. You know, like now realizing how much power this guy has over elections terrifies yeah. me. And I do believe that, like, this isn't really a perfect character study of Mark Zuckerberg. Like, Mark Zuckerberg has denied that he's like this. And I don't know. I mean, Mark Zuckerberg has said, of course I wasn't, like, angry that I couldn't get a date with, um, you know, Rooney Mara, who has that great scene at the beginning where she oh just God. dresses him down. And she's like, I want you to know women aren't not going to date you because you're a nerd. They're not going to date you because you're an asshole. I, I love, love that. that. And, like, he was like, no, I was already dating my future wife, Priscilla Chan, back then. I wasn't mad. However... I went kind of reading more about his relationship with Priscilla Chan to be like, how, is the, how accurate is this? And apparently when Priscilla agreed to move um, from the East Coast to live with him in Palo Alto, they signed an agreement that he would spend at least 100 minutes of private time with her a week as well as take her out on one date. So they wow. did have kind of an insane relationship. Well, and I can kind of believe this. You know, there's something I always wrestle with with biopics. And this is not a biopic, but it is a dramatization of real life events. I always feel like the real version is more interesting and they have to kind of create these larger archetypes. And so I always like wrestle with, you know, are we doing a disservice to our culture because this is now something that is, uh, works as a film. And then all of a sudden what works as a film becomes what actually is history or is it actually history that we have drama? Like it, I, I wrestle with it because I feel like now this gets logged in. Like people will learn about Facebook by watching this movie and there will be factual inaccuracies there. And should we hold films up to that standard, but it's a hard thing because when we put it forward as like the blind side, this is the true story. Like we all of a sudden make these assumptions and then five years later you come out like, well, actually that person was a terrible racist. Oh, and that person uh, shot somebody, you know, like, you know, because we, you know, we start to believe the myth of the movie. And so that, that always pushes me away from films like this, you know, the, the true story. I don't know why I rebel a little bit more against it because I feel like it gets brought into our history. I don't know if that no, makes sense. No, I totally sense. get that. I totally get that. I totally get it. It's like, if there is a truth in this movie in the broader sweep, I think it is that all of us, not even making it personal about Zuckerberg, but that we have ceded our power to people with a certain type of personality trait. Mm. You know, mathematical, seeing people as problems or ways to like rig their attention. Way, I mean, Mark Zuckerberg here to me is almost just an example of of so many of the developers living in Palo Alto and of the, of the way social media yeah. has taken over all of our lives. You know, when this movie came out, I don't even know if I was on Twitter. I don't even know if Twitter existed yet. Oh, and, it like, did. and yet, in a way, this could also be like a movie about that guy, about every right. schmuck. No, and, I and, think yeah. I think the idea of it is also this idea of what we are living in now, which is a culture of when you look at those first pictures of Jeff Bezos, like in an office with like a spray painted sign that says Amazon.com. You know, we've we've lived through this bubble and and I think it would be interesting now, especially where Zuckerberg is. You know, this is the year that he was Time Magazine's Man of the Year. He's certainly not that now. Um, you were talking about that scene where they first meet. I think about this scene a lot because um, that scene took two days to shoot. It's it's a two-person scene at a table and maybe like a five-page scene. It took two days, like 24 hours put into that scene and this performance of this pacing and dialogue it, it's it's really a masterful scene like when i think about that movie i think about that first 
scene. It it is the thesis statement of the entire film. And and like you referenced before, I I think in that way, yeah, it it, it captures something that no other film has. So I've also just talked myself out of the biography of it. Maybe it's more like don't use this as the baseline for what the actual biography is, but look at it more as a snapshot of the culture that we are currently living in, how we got to where we are. And maybe that's the more important thing. And when we look at this list and the AFI list and go like, this is, this captures one specific story that can be shown to so many different ways. Yeah, that there's truth that isn't even, it doesn't have to be the exact truth to be the truth. Yes. He felt like that girl doesn't need to exist for us to believe that people like him felt like they needed to be cool for some reason. Yeah. I, and how are they going to do it? And he felt like an outsider and he wanted to be one of those clubs and he had to make his own club. I love that. I mean, well, there you go. And this is a movie that now you've made me really want to rewatch. I I wrestled with 2010 because there's a lot of things in 2010 that I am uh, gravitating towards. The Coen Brothers. True Grit, I think, is a great Western. But if I'm picking a Coen Brothers, and I think we've kind of now come to this consensus, you and I, that there should only be one film of every director on the list to a certain degree, just to make room for, I wouldn't pick that as my ultimate Coen brothers film, even though I love it so much. And I think it distills so much yeah. that is great about them. It'd be so hard picking a Coen brothers. I know movie. it's so hard. Um, and then I wrestled with the, with this other idea and I, it just kind of exists within 2010 and 2011, which is, this is also the year the final Harry Potter films come out. Uh, the deathly hallows part one and part two. And, there's something about that movie as one, which I think is so interesting culturally. Like it's this, you know, film as large as Lord of the Rings, as large as Star Wars. And I think it's uh, a film that grows with the audience and it really evolves and and I think gets better and darker and and deeper. And I think that there is there should be a salute to that film on this list. And you know, my gut, though, if I had to pick any, I think it would probably pick the Alfonso Cuaron, which is, I believe, the third film in that series. It really kind of sets it off on a totally different trajectory than the Christopher Columbus uh, film. It, wait, is that the one where they kill Robert Pattinson? I think. I'm not sure. They all blend together. But all I'm saying they is They do this. all blend together. And yet, you're right. There is such an arc. Like, the, you put the Chris Columbus one next to the very last one. Yeah. You'd be like, how is this the same franchise? And I think that this is a movie that would be on the list. Like, I think the AFI should recognize this. This is, I think, our generation's Lord of the Rings or our generation's Star Wars. You know, it, it is something that affected- Wait, I have news for you. Our yeah. generation still has our Star Wars. Well, it's I mean, still happening. And our Lord of yes. the Rings. They're not going away. Well, but I guess <laughs> what I'm saying is I feel like Star Wars, to the most part, is catering to well, at least to me, right? It's not catering to the children of the world. And I think that like kids grew up with Harry Potter. I don't think that I don't think that Lord of the Rings is as prevalent as it was for our parents, right? And then I think Star Wars is as more prevalent with us, you know? And so I feel like there is an importance to representing this film. So I wrestled with that. And then I looked at Christopher Nolan. I know I'm talking about a few of these films, but I looked at Christopher Nolan and I said- I just keep holding my breath waiting for you to say MacGruber. Ah, uh, well, you're like, hold on, hold on now. Oh, okay. <laughs> um, but then I looked at Christopher Nolan and I thought to myself, uh, well, the Inception's like one of the most interesting films that he's done, in my opinion, because it kind of combines a lot of different things with a unique story that, you know, he, it- uh, it feels like an original story, but it has these really big, bold ideas. It did things with special effects. It has this amazing cast, this ending that can be debated. But then 
if I'm wrestling with it, then do I go, well, maybe I should save that one for Dark Knight Rises because that really is the ultimate version of, you know, maybe what we want our superhero movies to be. So I was wrestling with that. And then, Amy, you read me correctly. <gasps> that I thought about comedy on this list. Whoa, I was half kidding, but go no, on. And I was thinking, what about a big balls-to-the-wall comedy? Like a comedy that is not substantial in any way besides making you laugh. Like a comedy that like Airplane or, or Naked Gun before it is just there to make jokes and and there was something that was really interesting about MacGruber to me because I thought <laughs> here is a film that, you know, it has grown in popularity. It is insane. And why not have slapstick? We have slapstick with the Marx Brothers. We have slapstick with, you know, the Philadelphia story. Why can't we have a modern day slapstick that parodies our culture? Same way you're talking about social network. We're talking about, you know, this is a parodying all the action films of our time, the stupidity of, you know, the white American male machismo. Like, there's so much here that I feel like is, uh, you know, culturally relevant and fun. And I guarantee you could play this in any language. And I think anyone would laugh at this movie. I think this movie uh, calls people in. That is my pick for this year. I'm going to go for <laughs> MacGruber because why not? Why not just embrace it? I mean, listen to this clip where MacGruber has sent Kristen Wiig undercover as MacGruber to order coffee, and he is upset about it. Take a listen. All right, Vic, if we're going to draw this bastard out, he's got to think he's got eyes on the real live MacGruber. Okay. Okay, don't worry. We got your back. We're only seven blocks away, so if anything goes down... Seven blocks? Okay, you got me, about 20 blocks. But if anything goes down, we'll be right there. Wasn't anything closer? Nope. There were tons of spots closer. Yeah, with meters. Fine, look, I don't think I should be talking to you anymore because people are going to be staring at me and thinking that I'm talking to myself and I don't want to attract attention. And I'm at the counter, so... just going to order now. Can I help you? Can I have a small latte? No, no, no. MacGruber would never order that. I'm all about the large Tazo tea. I'm sorry. Sorry, can I change that? Um, can I get a large Tazo tea? Sure. Anything else? No! No! <laughs> can I get your name? I'll let you take this one, Vic. Um, MacGruber. Good job. <laughs> I mean, this movie... <laughs> is a solid, <gasps> solid comedy. Uh. And and we have room for it. We have room for slapstick, right? I mean, we have room for big, broad nonsense. And the fact that this movie has staying power to me is really impressive. I love this movie so much. It's such a good movie. <laughs> I love that whole scene. She tips. He's like, MacGruber doesn't tip. She has to get the tip money out. Oh, I mean, this might be my favorite Kristen Wiig movie. Like, everything about this movie, I, I absolutely I mean, love. I think it also distills what I love about Will Forte as a comedian. I think Will Forte is one of those guys who has such a specific brand of comedy. And I think, you know, it is so clearly defined here. I think, you know, Last Man definitely had that voice as well. But this movie really works. And it was so uh, ignored when it came out. I remember seeing um, this on opening night and being like, I have just witnessed the biggest hit of all time. But this is also 
to your point, the death of the mid-budget movie. The, the mid-budget comedy, people Oof. didn't go see. The, these were not movies yeah. that people were going to go see. And I think unless it had the name Apatow attached to it, it was not a type of film that people were going to go see. And and that was – it's a bummer because – well, it's not a bummer because, you know what, comedies should and can live – outside of box office success because the longer they have legs, the better off they are. It, you look at a movie like Elf and the success that Elf is even has as a Christmas movie. Like it just, these are the hits. You know, we have to kind of embrace them when we get them. And sure, maybe it didn't work in the box office, this movie, MacGruber, but uh, I think it continues to get audiences and fans. And, and I think probably as we get further and further away from it, people don't even realize it was based on an SNL sketch, which I believe at the root of it was why everyone avoided it. Do you think so, that I SNL do. curse? Yeah. I think people were like, oh, this is like superstar, and not realize, no, no, the people behind it are great and smart. Yeah, they and made a full-on movie. And weirdly, doesn't that happen to all of his movies? Like, that pop star never stops stopping. Yeah. Is also now getting, like, a second win online that people are, are now also celebrating that movie as it deserved to be celebrated when it came out. I 100% agree, especially because of my like, performance in it. Oh, that's true. Oh, my God. No, I didn't I, know you back then. Yeah, I know, I know. Yeah. But, you know, like, the budget of that movie, MacGruber, was $10 million. That's Small that budget. And you know how much it made at the box office? Oh, God. 9.3. Oh. Not, but that's not... Awful. It's not awful. I mean, it's like, yes, it would have been great if it made 20. But, you know, uh, I just think that comedy is hard. And the way that comedy works is by people telling other people you should watch it. I think that that happened with Longshot as well. Like Longshot was a movie that was really well received and reviewed, but it didn't really, you know, hit at the box office. But it's kind of picked up its life afterwards. I mean, Um, I will say we think about MacGruber. I would say I'm going to make a big statement here, but I think in the current era, we think of MacGruber a lot more than we think of The Town, which is yes. the AFI list. Yes. I think MacGruber has more of a, you know, more of a place in this list. So that that is my pick for 2010. That I, is fair. I and think you, so far we have a good list going. Yeah. You know, as we say goodbye to 2010, I just want to say I do think 2010 is special for one other reason, mm-hmm. which is that it is the year that I think 3D movies were huge. Oh, wow. uh, they were massive. They were everywhere. Every movie was a 3D movie, and most of them were kind of bad. But the two best modern 3D movies I ever saw came out in 2010. Which were those? I want to give them a shout out. One is Jackass 3D. Oh, beautiful. amazing. Beautiful movie. Beautiful cinema. Yeah. Absolutely beautiful cinema. When he's in that suit and the bowl is running around, oh, amazing. Amazing. We're very lucky to have Jeff Tremaine on the show, one of our earliest shows. Jeff Tremaine That's came right. on our show. Talk about it. And uh, then yeah. perhaps the most beautiful 3D movie of all time also came out this year, Step Up 3D. Amy, you don't have to sell me on this movie. I fucking love you it. Do? I what? saw it in the theater. I love the Step Up movies. Step Up 3D in the theater. 3D was one of oh. the best uses of 3D. Hands Ever. down. Ever. I saw it. I saw it. I saw it. I saw it. Dancing in the water. Contagious. Oh my Forget god. It. Forget it. Forget it. Even like the dumb, even the dumbest dance, which is like when he has the Slurpee and yeah. he's like standing on an air conditioning grate and the Slurpee is floating up yeah. in the air at you. I mean, because I just thought, I thought the problem with like the whole 3D revolution was that like none of the 3D was that cool. They're all about making it, you know, yeah, seamless 3D. And cool. Yeah. No, this 3D was like, oh, I'm dancing at you. I'm doing the robot I, head at you. All I want is someone to take a pool stick and like shoot it at me at the screen. That's the level <laughs> of 3D that I want and need. I bought a 3D TV because obviously it's the future. And I was so happy that the two DVDs that I had that were in 3D were Cave of Dreams mm-hmm. uh, and Step Up 3D because they are the fucking best. Oh, my God, Paul, I'm so happy yeah. right now. Oh, I love it. I love it. And you know what? Um, just to mention it, I think we've gone down the list. 
I think Black Swan's an interesting movie too on 2010. I, I don't want to just like totally gloss over it, but Black Swan's a movie that I feel like its reverberation has felt um, throughout cinema. I think Darren Aronofsky always makes really interesting movies. And that's a movie that I may not have seen a bunch. I don't, I don't think I can stomach any of his movies like that many times because they're such an emotionally uh, hard experience. But that movie is a beautiful movie as well. I, I don't know if it's the one that I would say needs to be on this list, but it is. It definitely is gorgeous. No, and I'm talking glad about you dancing. said that. I did not like Black Swan that much when it came out. I think it's because I've had kind of this like mild allergy to Natalie Portman for <laughs> a really long time. That there are times when I get over it, and then there's times when I like fall back on it. I think I was in like a very anti-Portman when I saw this in 2010, but then. I rewatched it last year because my boyfriend made me. Right. Uh, because my boyfriend, he was working on a film about an invisible friend. It's yes. called Daniel Isn't Real. It's great. It actually comes up now. Uh, so tiny shout out to that film. I would love it. Go see it. But yeah, he watched Black Swan as kind of a reference. And when I rewatched it with him, I was really struck by how much I enjoyed it now. It clicked with me in a way that it didn't click with me before. So yeah. All right. Yeah. I'm down to Swan. Maybe I was just like... Drunk all of 2010? I don't know what happened. No, I was I, really off. I, think I was that, like drunk and watching Step Up 3D. But I think there are these films that that we that grow on us. That yeah. just, you know, they don't have to always work right out of the gate. And that's what we're kind of talking about. We're talking about how social network has changed. We're talking about how McGruber has gotten cult status. You know, and and I think Black Swan, another director who is a masterful director who's not wasting anything. And he makes this movie that I think you can revisit. I, I think a lot of people gave Eyes Wide Shut a lot of grief when it came out, but I've rewatched it a handful of times, and it's like it's a pretty solid film. It may not be your favorite Kubrick, but it's a good movie. It's a you may not love what it's about, but it it's good. You can't you can't take that away from it. I would like to say for the record, I was not drunk all of 2010. I was on PCP. <laughs> hey everybody, it's Rob Lowe here. If you haven't heard. I have a podcast that's called Literally with Rob Lowe. And basically it's conversations I've had that really make you feel like you're pulling up a chair at an intimate dinner between myself and people that I admire, like Aaron Sorkin or Tiffany Haddish, Demi Moore, Chris Pratt, Michael J. Fox. There are new episodes out every Thursday. So subscribe, please, and listen wherever you get your podcasts. All right, Amy, the year is 2011. Rebecca Black debuts her song, Friday, Friday, Friday. The Vuvuzela of pop music. Yep. Charlie Sheen is winning. Oh, God. Uh, The fad is planking. OMG and LOL are officially added into the Oxford English Dictionary. A 9.0 magnitude earthquake off the coast of Japan triggered a 133-foot tsunami and caused $360 billion in damages and took 16,000 lives. And the top song is Rolling in the Deep by Adele. And the Golden Raspberry Award for Worst Picture went to Jack and Jill. Jack and Jill. Oh, wow. You saw Jack and Jill. I did see Jack and Jill. I actually hosted the Critics' Choice Awards uh, the year that Jack and Jill came out. And I made a very uh, veiled reference about Jack and Jill. And apparently 
upset Adam Sandler, which I still to this day uh, <laughs> am very upset about. That I uh, that I upset Adam Sandler, who I think is a fantastic actor, and I enjoy ninety percent of everything that he does. Oh, have you seen Uncut Gems yet? <laughs> Cannot wait to see Uncut Gems. <laughs> all right, all right, I'll, leave um, I'll leave that there. I'll leave that there. Um, the AFI films of the year were in alphabetical order again: Bridesmaids, mm-hmm. The Descendants, mm-hmm. Girl with a Dragon Tattoo, The Help. Hugo, J. Edgar, Midnight in Paris, Moneyball, The Tree of Life, and War Horse. Interesting. It's a, it's a very interesting year of films that were important in 2011, right? <laughs> I mean, like, uh, this is a list that I feel like when I was looking at, I was like, wow, this is a an interesting year. And um, I have, oh boy, you know, my... I didn't want to overload and be a person who's like, I'm only going with comedies because that's what I like. But my gut was, well, Bridesmaid seems like a perfect fit. It's just an amazing cast, a wonderful premise, really well executed, um, and just a really funny movie that not only popped certain actors, you know, from Melissa McCarthy and Ellie Kemper, but just like solidifies how great Maya Rudolph and Kristen Wiig are playing parts that are really grounded and real. And, and you know what? I think one of my perfect revelations in this movie was also Rose Byrne, who I think does two films right in a row here. This film where she kills it, and I loved her performance in Get Into the Greek too. Great. Just, yeah, Rose Byrne, I think, is one of our greatest switch hitters. Her yeah. ability to do comedy and drama. I mean, she's like the best at that. Awesome. Just awesome. But I didn't want to just double down on comedy. And I wanted to kind of uh, make you, you know, mad. And you have such an evil smile right now. And I wanted to say the film that I feel like is the most important in this year. So not a sequel. It's not part of a trilogy. It is the fifth in a franchise. And one would say the most important fifth film of any franchise. And that is Fast Five where shit changed. <laughs> Amy, we took this franchise, which was a point break ripoff, and we said, hold up, po- folks. Let's revolutionize what we know as cinema. I will say, without Fast Five, there's no John Wick. Without Fast Five, there is uh, no rock. I don't know. I think the Fast Five action film turns the lever and creates what we have been looking for. Like, right, we had the Rocky and the Rambos and the Terminators. We had all that sort of stuff. And we've been looking, what's our action movies? What's our action movies? And Fast Five comes and goes, guys, I figured it out. This is the format. I think you can look at Marvel movies. I think you can look at everything and go, Fast Five is great. Now, I understand. Is it worthy of being on the list? Probably not. But I do believe this movie is important as far as what it does to the action genre in a major, a major way. I will not disagree with you, actually. I do think Fast Five is pivotal. I mean, I do think Fast Five is my personal favorite of the Fast Five franchise. I think to me, I just can't even think of what the franchise is called if it's not called Fast Five. Honestly. I mean, that's the best one. It's the best one. It is It is great. I really legitimately did enjoy watching the movie. And I do think there is something to be said about 2011 being an interesting movie for action in general. The Raid comes out in 2011. Yes. Did, did you see The Raid? Yeah. Amazing. Yeah. All of a sudden, I do think like action gets kind of a jolt in yeah. that year. Even Hannah. You remember the movie? Yes. With, like, Hannah, great. Ronan? Yeah. There's cool action this year. 
And I think I think we've wrestled with this. Like, what is the action movie of this decade? And and I think you know, again, superhero movies are different. It what are the popcorn action films? And we've been trying to find it. And I always thought you know, for a while we've been putting different people in, like Garrett Hedlund, he'll be our new action star. Uh, this guy will be our new action star. Okay, uh, it's no, it's actually Angelina Jolie and Tomb Raider. It's like and none of it really works it just it like it's shoehorning it in this is the this is the one that felt like oh we figured out the new way to do fun popcorn action yeah we don't have one action star we have nine yeah and look at the cast as far as like you know the way that they reflect our culture and our country like they are not just all white and it's not all men you know it's predominantly men i'm not making it like this is a you know a really equally weighted franchise but they are doing some things that I think are different. Um, and, you know, it's directed by Justin Lin, who I think uh, solidifies his status as a director who I'm I'm a big fan of. And I was thinking about him in general as somebody who starts off with these independent roots from Better Luck Tomorrow and just kind of brings this kind of indie action vibe into into our mainstream and then is able to launch that off and now made Star Trek. And I think he's a really interesting director. I mean, I think you are actually really right about something here, which is I, I I, think you're right that the Avengers franchise as we know it today would not look the way that it is. Marvel would not look the way that it is if Fast Five hadn't been such a huge hit. And I bet Disney took a look at what a huge hit this was and they said, oh, we can do that too. So I'm stumping. That's where I'm stumping right now. What What do you think for 2011? Well, first, I want to say I think it is an act of supreme, like, 80 miles an hour trolling to put the middle film in a franchise on the list. Yeah, hell yeah. Look, I'm the person who just got behind Harry Potter 3. I believe that franchises can get better with age. You know, we were talking about 2010, and I would be remiss if I didn't bring up that Toy Story 3, I think, is really solid. And if I was to look at all of them, I think it is the best one of their franchise as well. You know, now that there's four of them out, I do think that that Toy Story 3 is like a very dark, heavy, big film that is beautifully done. But Whatever. So I'm 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 up for giving props to middle of the the middle of the uh, of the cycle. I think it's important. I think a lot of the times what you find is a director who comes in and and revolutionizes there. I think that that's what Taika was able to do with Thor. It's like, oh wait, this is what this is, and all of a sudden you can get like a real shot of adrenaline. And the Russo brothers coming into Captain America too. You know what? And I will say, I mean, I don't know if this even counts as middle of the franchise. Mm-hmm. But um, Rise of the Planet of Ape of the Apes oh, came out this year. I love, love Rise of the Planet of the Apes. So and it's, good. I guess it's sort of like the start of the newer franchise, but, but what it's a, part of the older franchise. And I think that movie is just terrific, honestly. It is uh, a really well done version of it, and of course we know what a bad version of it is, which is the Tim Burton version of it. Uh, you know, and this is a movie that I think you know Rupert Wyatt doesn't get uh, a lot of credit for, kind of really, you know, bringing this this film and you know it. It it's smarter than it needs to be, and it's really, really well done. Yeah, I think Rupert Wyatt makes good friends. Good films. I think I'm the only person who might be standing up for. I think he did this film this year called Captive State. Okay, I kind of dug Captive State, but anyway, um, I digress. I digress. I picked two films from this year. Okay, I was going for two films a year, and like I just struck oh, by out the way, 2010. I, I couldn't even think of a second one. I've been there. going for two as well. I have a lot of two. <laughs> oh, okay. Here we go. Well, then I will start with my first of the two. Okay, which is Young Adult. The Diablo Cody, Jason Reitman movie with Charlize Theron. I think one of the best Charlize Theron. Every Charlize Theron performance is great. Yes. I think this one is right up at the top with everything she's ever done. I, you know, for me, if you're taking this grouping together, 
of the Jason Reitman, Diablo Cody, Charlize mix. Tully hit harder for me, but I love this movie. This movie is a great film. Yeah, in a way, maybe I feel like I've grown up with Diablo Cody movies too. You know, mm-hmm. when I saw Juno, I mean, I was definitely not like a high school pregnant girl. Right. But I like identified so much with the Juno character. And then I love, I love, I love Mavis Gary for being the worst monster. Oh, She's yeah. just fin- uh, Can we listen to a little bit of just like Charlize as Mavis Gary? Yeah. This is her in her big climax. Uh, if people haven't seen this in a minute, the plot of Young Adult is that the most popular girl in school you know, moved from her tiny town in Minnesota to Minneapolis. She's back to try to steal back her ex-boyfriend, even though he's, like, married with kids. And this is her confronting his wife at a party. Mavis? What? Are you, are you okay? I'll be fine if I can get a real drink around here. Yeah. Uh, there's some right here. Thanks, Uncle Bob. You know what? Oh my God. Uh, I'll, I'll get to... Fuck you! Fuck you! You fucking bitch! Oh my god. You should see your face. It's a joke. Are you just gonna stand there like a big lump? I love your sweater. I'll get you a rag. Go get me a rag, because you got so many of those lying around here. Fucking burp cloths, whatever. You know, the funny thing is, I could have had this party a long time ago. This exact same party. Yeah. Buddy and I were together for four years, and we were inseparable. Jan knows, right, Jan? Tell him. No, you know, don't bother. It is silk. It's fucked. Mavis, sweetheart. Mother, I'm trying to tell a story here. I mean, it's such a, like, Uh. you showed me that clip. Makes me want to re-watch that film because I've only seen it once. Uh, and, you know, it, it's, I mean, it, yeah, she's so good in that. She's so good in that. I mean, the range of emotion she has even just in that clip. Like, the reason mm. I picked out that clip is, in part, I love how it goes from, like, her phoning, like, I like your sweater, just making fun of the, mm-hmm. of the fakeness that she has always carried with her, yelling that her silk is fucked, her entitlement, her everything in this scene. I mean... This movie, I think, is one of the best examples of makeup and, co- and costuming in any movie on this list because you get to watch her. I mean, Charlize Theron is a beautiful girl, right? She is beautiful. And this movie puts her through the through different paces. Sometimes she's in sweatpants and her hair is all messy. Then you watch her get beautiful when she knows she's going to see Buddy. Like, it's armor. You watch her yeah. comb her hair and put her lipstick on. You see her just, like, become extra beautiful, almost like it's the superpower. And then how right. she tries to use it against people. She's just so fake and so shallow. And I love how this movie ends. I mean, this movie ends with her being like at the kitchen table of, you know, because she has this kind of strange relationship with Patton Oswalt as mm-hmm. the guy who had the locker next to her that she always ignored. Yeah. And then she's at his house and she tells his sister, like, I need to change. I need to be a better person. And the sister who's kind of a nerd is like, no, you're perfect. And she's like, yes, I am perfect. I am too good for this town. And she just doesn't grow up ever. I know. Oh. And I love it. And I love how the boy that she's just so obsessed with and fighting over, played by Patrick Wilson, he's just a drip. There's nothing even that cool about him. He's just handsome. Yeah. And I think that's very much on purpose. She wants this dude who's not even that rad. He's just pretty. Yes. And just wants him because she can't have him. It's just the best character study. She's like this complicated, horrible woman. And I love her so deeply. And I care about her so much. I I want the world for her. And I think she's terrifying. Well, I think, you know, this is the beginning of an era in this decade where we're telling more 
complicated stories with female leads. And as I maybe I don't want to like put too much on it, but you can see, you know, from bridesmaids to this, this is kind of, and even, you know, I guess 2009 is when sex in the city came out. 2010 is when sex in the city two came out. Like, uh, it, like cinema is kind of shifting as we're getting a little bit more to some more female centric films and, and, and stories. And I, and I think that this movie is a really great example of showing a different type of, you know, it reminds me of like um, all about Eve, like these kind of like very complicated, great portrayals. I, you know. Yeah, totally. And I wonder if Bridesmaids stole a little bit of young adults thunder or something that people were like, that movie is the big hit. That movie is the great one. I think young adult is a better film. Honestly, all the way around, I think it's a lot more commo- like complicated emotionally, even though I think Bridesmaids is great. Love Bridesmaids. Love Bridesmaids, but I love Young Adult. But it's like, to me, that comparison to is slightly like Thai food versus seafood. It's like, they're both great. Like, I think that, I don't think that Bridesmaids is trying to do anything as a as emotionally complex as this. And this movie is a lot smaller. Like, Bridesmaids is, at its core, a big blockbuster comedy. It has all the elements of that. And this to me is going back to what I was saying earlier in the beginning of the episode, when done right, mumblecore independent film about something very personal, very small is electric. And this is it. And I've seen bad versions of this movie as well. I mean, I feel like there's so many people trying to do this, like, oh, I'm a fucked up character and I, and I have all these emotions, but you know, and like, and you know, when I see, when I see Diablo Cody kind of doing it, when I see Danny McBride doing it, like I think, there's something that really works and there's something that really feels alive and fresh. And I see other people doing it. It just feels like, want to see my demo reel for uh, me as an actor? Watch uh, what I can do. And in this, I don't feel any of that. I don't feel it in the writing. I don't feel it in the performance. No, not at all. And I mean, I think the reason that I stacked up this against Bridesmaids is because I do think in 2011, we didn't have that many slots for films that starred women. Mm-hmm. And it was kind of like, you get this one Bridesmaids. Maybe you'll get one more female comedy this yeah. year. Maybe one the next year. And I do feel like there was kind of like, you know, kind of like a competing for a mental slot, honestly. I really do believe that. And if there is something that excites me about 2019, it's that we have so many late now, comparatively speaking, that they can kind of live and die a bit more on their own merits, which I appreciate. And they don't have to compete. I think the fact that even in my head I was making them compete says something about the mentality of 2011 that I hope isn't true anymore. I I love that. Um, Well, you were going to bring in two films each. I wanted to talk about one film, and I put this on my list – because honestly, I remember how it made me feel. I haven't revisited it. No one talks about it. But it is the film The Artist. And The Artist to me was a really interesting film because it did something that no other film had done in that time. It's 2011, and we all want to go see a silent film in the theater, a black and white film in the theater. And and people really gravitated towards it. And I think there's something really magical about that movie that it just, it's not even part of the conversation. And I don't know why, because I thought it was such an interesting experiment that really succeeded. That's so funny. I mean, here it is. It's the number one movie that year, I think, right? Yeah. It, it wins the Oscar for Best Picture. Yeah. It's not on the AFI list, and I did not expect you to mention it at all. I mean, you know, but it it's a movie that, you know, this we talk about this idea of the middle or the road picture, like you know, the blind side. But this is a movie that I think takes a much bigger swing and really works. I mean, yes, it's basing it on our love of old Hollywood and all that 
you know, that that kind of reverence for the past, but it it's a bigger swing than any of those other films. I mean, it's it's creating this narrative and it has a little bit of a darker underside. Um, it's a foreign film, so I don't know if it necessarily, I mean, I guess it won the Academy Award, so I'm putting it on the, on the list, but, um. I mean, I do love Jean Dujardin. I think he's got this, like, evil handsome. He, to me, reminds me a lot of John Hamm, where you can film him in a way where their handsomeness is almost malevolent. (laughs) I don't know if you've ever seen the OSS 117 series. Oh, yes. I love those. They're so So good. So funny. And I will say, I'll give the dog. Mm-hmm. You know, he became a punchline, of course, a little bit this yes. year, you know, and, and and going forward. He actually, at the LAFCA dinner that year, you know, the LA Film Critics Association, we gave an award to um, the artist and they showed up with the dog, you know, Uggie yeah. was there at the awards. And my main memory is like, you know, they walked in Uggie to the stage. We're like in a hotel banquet room, everybody's sitting down. They walked Uggie up to the stage and uh, Michael Fassbender was there in the back of the room and he was kind of, I think he was kind of drunk. Don't get mad at me, Michael Fassbender, but I think he was kind of drunk. And I just remember Michael Fassbender yelling, pick up the dog, really, really loudly. And they didn't. But um, Uh. I later on met Uggie's trainer because Uggie's trainer is this amazing trainer. I follow him on Instagram. I'm like obsessed with him. And he trained this other dog that I loved a lot um, whose name is Jumpy. Okay. Jumpy is now passed on. Like Uggie also died. Jumpy passed on. This guy trains the best and brightest dog. So I I do appreciate a movie that shows a dog that can act. And I do think that Uggie acts in this film. I mean, Uggie is very good. And, you know, we talked about the box office. This movie made $133 million. That's insane. It's insane. $133 million. Didn't even make the AFI list. What do you think it is when a film can take the, the nation by storm, but yet isn't remembered? I don't think that people would talk about the artist. And that was when I was and doing my has- research. I was like, oh, but I love that movie. And it's not even like it's indistinct. It's fascinating to me when we turn on a film. Yeah. Because I think we did culturally turn on the artist right away. I think we were already mad at it for winning before it even won. Right. But it the amount of work that that would take to capture an audience in 2011? To capture $133 million I mean, an audience? That, like, that, I think, is artistry. That, With a that, movie star who's not that famous? Not at all famous. <laughs> not at all. Like, yeah. to an American audience, not at all. He's a French actor. I just realized that I'm talking to the same Paul Shear. Who said he didn't think you like silent movies? Yeah, who knows? This one caught me. This one got me good. I've seen other silent movies. I like them. I like them. <laughs> but yeah, but who knows? Who knows? Who knows? I, I'm I'm an enigma, Amy. I'm an enigma. Well, I want to say you picked in this year Fast Five and The Artist. Yeah, that is supreme. Hell yeah! Sincere trollery. Can you be a sincere troll? I think you're being <laughs> a sincere troll right now. I mean, let's see how much Fast Five <laughs> made at the box office. That made six hundred and twenty-six million. What? What? <laughs> I'm scared to look up what my next pick made at the box office because I'm sure it's not that. Uh, so I was looking for a film for my second pick that I thought had a little bit of like social relevance. Like, mm. what's a film that I feel like could tell us something about who we are as a people? Mm-hmm. Could say something about the present to the future? Could kind of commemorate something. So I picked and then discarded, but I picked, I discarded just because I haven't rewatched it in a bit. Rango. I thought about, <laughs> I thought about, we need to talk about Kevin. Um, oh yeah. yeah. It's the Lynn Ramsey film um, with Tilda Swinton where her son, you know, yes. the debut really of Ezra Miller, I think on like a big, big scale. It's a prequel to Kevin can wait, right? Yeah, it is. Yeah, yeah. Uh, no, Kevin is a school shooter. And so it's about a woman and, and her child and kind of wrestling with her feelings about like raising a kid who is a killer. And was right. she a good mom to him and the guilt that comes up with it. And I think that is a really interesting story, you know, to have something about this moment, something about young teenage boys and what's mm. happening. I thought about it. And then I went with a film that is equally depressing 
but I think taps into a mood that I'm feeling so much in 2019, which is melancholia. Ooh, gut punch. Yeah. That movie is rough. That movie is rough. And if you haven't seen Melancholia or if you haven't seen it in a minute, it's by Lars von Trier, who makes the most Ooh, cheerful films the on most. the planet. Uh, but it uh, opens with a wedding. Kristen Dunst is getting married, and she's just a very sad bride. You know, she's at this wedding. Everybody's kind of crazy. She's a little bit miserable. Her sister is there, Charlotte Gainsbourg, who's more of an optimist trying to cheer her up. Uh, none of that's really working. And then they discover at the midpoint of the film that there is a planet that's headed towards the Earth. And at first, they think the planet's going to miss them, and that's just a conspiracy theory and that they can all survive another day. But Kirsten just sort of knows deep down that this is not going to end well, and the planet doubles back after passing over them and smashes into the mm. Earth, and the movie ends with the that Earth end. dying. Yes. Uh, and according to Kirsten Dunst in this clip, that's going to be just fine. The Earth is evil. We don't need to grieve for it. Nobody will miss it. But why would Leo grow? All I know is life on Earth is evil. There may be life somewhere else, but there isn't. How do you know? I know things. Oh, yes, you always imagined you did. I know we're alone. I don't think you know that at all. I mean, I remember that scene. You know, one of the best performances in that film to me, I mean, besides uh, Kirsten Dunst, who I think is always just pretty solid, is Kiefer Sutherland. Yeah. I think it's like one of his, it's a devastating performance, and it's an amazing like, how would you act if the world was ending? And, and the oh, God, I mean, I just, it's a tough, tough movie. It is a really tough movie. And, you know, 2011, we're a year before 2012, before this, like, theory that the, that the world is going to end. So I think when I saw this film in 2011, I kind of put it in the context of 2012 apocalypseness. Mm. And now I'm able to see it, I think, better for what it is. Like, I think this film has also grown a, a huge amount in my in my brain, because we're living in a world where it seems like a very perfectly normal thing to me that I can drive down the street and see a car with a bumper sticker that says Giant Meteor 2020. Like, we're kind of right. living in this mental apocalypse mode now where I think I think a lot of us have been carrying a lot of stress. A lot of us have been wrestling with negativity, yeah. you know, kind of like a, a futility, a real – I think a giant cultural depression has kind of sat in, in the country. And – this movie is about what happens when you face that on. Like, how do you handle oblivion? Or like, the, I, uh, it, it sounds so dark, but I think no. there's something beautiful in it. You know, in the final scene of this, you have three people like sitting under this teepee that they've made, yeah. you know, that they've made out of sticks. And it's Charlotte Gainsbourg and her son and Kirsten Dunst. And they're all handling this idea of... Of of devastation in a different way. Like they've lied to the kid and told him that they're in a magic teepee. So he has his eyes closed. He doesn't see the planet coming Ugh, at them. But he's me. sorry. But he's like, he's fine. He's smiling. And you have Charlotte Gainsbourg, who loves her son so much, who knows everything that's going to happen, who's always thought the world was going to be an okay place. This is the person I think yeah. I identify the most with. And she's just a mess. Like she's sobbing and weeping and about to lose it. And then you have Kirsten Dunst, who 
has always kind of expected something like this to happen. It's like she didn't know what it was going to be, but something bad was going to happen. Yeah. And she's kind of calm. And oh, I'm just going to play the music of it just oh, to really bum you out. I'm sorry. Me. This is the end of the world. All right. Oof, oof, oof. Uh, it's a great movie. It's a, it's a, my favorite Christmas film. <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm no, sorry, but, but it's, but you know what? This is another great example of like uh, a movie that, you know, I think that there are some movies that are difficult to watch. We're talking about Black Swan. Uh, we even talked about Requiem for a Dream on another episode where, you know, they are these movies that really affect you greatly when you watch them, but I never want to see them again. And you know, I, I, like, I, like, because I've gone that way. I've gone with, with those people. Like it's, and I've experienced everything. Like I love, you know, I read the road. I love watching the road, uh, which I guess I'm probably in the minority for, but, uh, but it's like, I, there, it's not like, Ooh, let's pop it in. Let's pop it in tonight. Let's want to watch precious tonight. Yeah. Let's watch precious. <laughs> I, actually, you know, we got this question online and maybe this is a good moment to, to ask you. Now that you are a jailbird, mm-hmm. do oh, you yeah. have a greater appreciation for um, the Shawshank Redemption? Everybody <laughs> else wants to pop in all the time. Yes, you know now that I have been arrested uh, and uh, and in lockup, uh, I feel like you know my voiceover has gotten really good, and uh, my appreciation for opera really came full circle. So yeah, a hundred percent. Uh, and I'm available to tar any sort of uh, roof surface at any moment. So yeah, look me up. <laughs> I'll be on the baseball field. Um, I mean, I think when I when I finally picked Melancholia for this list, I think I started to really realize that maybe what assembling our best films of the decade is for me is I'm looking at myself kind of grow up a little bit or change. Like I feel like a different person putting this list together in 2019 mm. than I was when I when I would have give, made my my top ten in 2011. You know what I think when I'm looking at this list so far, and we're only we're you know we're only kind of the first two years in. Uh, what I love about it is how many places I can go. You know, I can go from something like Melancholia or The Artist to, you know, something, you know, as light as Bridesmaids or Magruber. Like, I think I like the ability to shift. Um, I think a lot of the times when I see these lists, you know, we're we're often confined to like, well, what's, what is viewed? You know, like to me, we haven't talked about, about The Descendants. A great film. Really great film. A lot of buzz. A lot of great performances. But – you know, like, like I think that oftentimes when we put these lists together, you know, I think we try to pick the ones that we think should be on the list, but not the ones that actually affect us and uh, the right way. And I think we're trying to rectify the sins of our past by just not just going like this belongs because it is important, you know. Agree. I appreciate that the help gave us Emma Stone. And yeah. it doesn't need to be on the list. We're good. A hundred percent. But maybe it will be if it's the AFI based on how they've been. You know, Amy, I uh, picked this scene from uh, – Fast Five that I think really encapsulates the depth of the characters. This is when um, Hobbs and Toretto, that's The Rock, and Vin Diesel meet for the first time. Uh, and you kind of hear what's going on dramatically here. And Amy, this is a clip from The Artist. <laughs> wow, Paul, if I've learned something, it's that you don't like words. Uh- <laughs> Hey, everybody, it's Rob Lowe here. 
If you haven't heard, I have a podcast that's called Literally with Rob Lowe. And basically it's conversations I've had that really make you feel like you're pulling up a chair at an intimate dinner between myself and people that I admire, like Aaron Sorkin or Tiffany Haddish, Demi Moore, Chris Pratt, Michael J. Fox. There are new episodes out every Thursday. So subscribe, please, and listen wherever you get your podcasts. Amy, let's move on to our last year of this episode. The year is 2012. Prior to 2012, the largest buyer of kale in the U.S. was Pizza Hut, and they used it as garnish on their salad bar. Uh, The body of Richard III was lost for over 500 years, and he was discovered beneath a parking lot. The Dutch East India Company becomes the most valuable company ever in world history, valued at 7.4% trillion dollars. Drake finally graduates high school at the age of 25, and the top song was Somebody That I Used to Know by Gautier featuring Kimbra. The AFI movies of 2012 are Argo, Beasts of the Southern Wild, The Dark Knight Rises, Django Unchained, Les Miserables, Life of Pi, Lincoln, Moonrise Kingdom, Silver Linings Playbook, and Zero Dark Thirty. And the worst film of the year, according to the Golden Raspberry Award, was The Twilight Saga Breaking Dawn Part 2. Up against movies like Battleship, The uh, Oogie Loves, and The Big Balloon Adventure, and That's My Boy. Um, big okay. year. This, okay, you know what? I've been holding my tongue on this. I'm just going to say it now. The Razzies are garbage. Okay. Uh, I need to say this clearly. Okay. I went to a Razzie ceremony. Mm-hmm. The Razzies are the worst people on earth. The Razzies are just like... Seven angry people. Okay, wait. Did you know that? Here, here's the thing about the Razzies. Can I tell you this? Yeah. You're allowed to buy money to vote for the Razzies. Like, the way you become a voting member of the Razzies is you pay them, like, a hundred bucks, and then you get ten votes. So oh, it's kind wow. of like this tiny thing where, like, a few people who pay a couple thousand dollars control the Razzies forever. It's like, it's kind of a scam. But anyways, I had to say this about the Razzies because, you know, I went there. It's very weird. It's just, it's like a bunch of, it's like if every angry high school theater person put on a tiny show and they just do these bad skits about how much all these other movies suck, but all the movies are much better than their bad skits and they're hostile. And I don't feel like they even really watch the movies. I think they have like a very pile on gang mentality. Granted, um, uh, Jack and Jill deserved a Razzie and the, the Steve movie with Sandra Bullock also deserved a Razzie. That's a horrible movie, but breaking down part two does not deserve a Razzie. No, I agree with that. Breaking down part two is on my list of like, Best moments in a theater in my lifetime. Really? Oh, absolutely. Oh, my God. I mean, I think it's it, – this is 2012, so I think we're at the point where I can spoil the ending of Breaking Dawn Part 2 sure, if yes. you haven't seen it. Go for it. So Breaking Dawn Point 2 – Point 2. Breaking Dawn 2.0. Um, what happens is at the very end, there's like this giant showdown between like the good vampires and the bad vampires. Yes, and they're all running at each other in a field. They're all running at each other at the field. And like – I don't want to brag. I was at the premiere for Breaking Whoa, Dawn Part 2. Hey, so I'm in hey. the room with the whole audience. Everybody's watching it for the first time. And the way that scene plays out is everyone dies. Like all yeah. of your favorite characters in Breaking Dawn Part 2 just get their heads ripped off. Like it's, it's the a most pretty brutal, brutal death. Yes. And I was in that theater. We were losing our minds. Like everybody was just freaked out. Everybody was screaming. I was sitting next to Justin Chang. He's probably my favorite film critic right now. Uh-huh. I was like punching him in the thigh because I was losing my mind. It was insane. 
And then, of course, it's like, oh, it was all just this psychic prediction of what could have happened. But it was the greatest fake out I have ever seen at the movies. And I went to go see Breaking Down two more times, like opening weekend, just to be in that theater with everybody freaking out. I mean, it was like cocaine for me. It was amazing. You know, I think that those movies, we talked about Harry Potter earlier about being something that captures a generation. And those movies, I saw every single one of them. And they are not bad movies whatsoever. I mean, they're a melodrama. They are fun. I think they unfortunately fall into this category where like the special effects are sometimes a little creepy and bad. But I mean, look, I have nothing to say bad about them, even though I have uh, multiple podcasts dedicated to each of the films on how did this get made. Uh, but there is something fun about those movies. I actually enjoyed going to see them. I feel the same way. I, I No shitting on Twilight over here. Thank you. And I will say, those movies gave Kristen Stewart and Robert Pattinson the fuck you money they need to be two of the most exciting actors we have today. Fuck yeah. Yeah. I very much appreciate that. And you know what? They're good in those movies. They're good. I also believe that when you have somebody like Rob Pattinson um, doing like Batman, you know that he's there for a purely creative reason because there's no reason that he needs to jump in to a franchise. And I think Kristen Stewart, you know, the same way. I think she is making interesting choices. And by going and doing Charlie's Angels, like she is engaged by the material or the director or the story or the idea of what they're doing. And I, I, I am, I'm a fan. I'm a fan of both of them. I have nothing bad to say. I know you're a lot in her head, so I won't even get into that. Um, <laughs> but, uh, but I mean, this is a good year. This is a good year of solid films, in my opinion. Like it was actually really hard for me to, to distill it. But I think when I was looking at it, I thought, you and I probably will have our same pick for what the movie of the year is. So I want you to go first because I know I went first last time. So what, do you, what is your pick? Oh, wow. I will be surprised if you have my pick. Okay. All right. I'm going to go with the more likely one first. Mm -hmm. uh, to me, that's Django Unchained. Really? No. No? Not my pick. I thought about it a lot. And I thought about Quentin Tarantino. And again, what – Quentin Tarantino film would I put on this list? And uh, I don't think Django would go on this list. I love Django. Django's a great film. It's not not my favorite Quentin Tarantino. Just not my favorite. It's, it, you know, that's maybe a personal thing. But uh, yeah, it's definitely in my honorable mention segment of what I've put here. <laughs> All right, so talk to me about Django. I will. I mean, here's the thing. I feel like it's a little tricky to talk about Django because in a way, I, I think I'm placing a horse race bet on Django, mm -hmm. which is that Django is, to me, so negative about America and so on the money in so many ways and such a harsh movie and such a mean, mean, brutal movie Right. that I think... I don't think we'll really able to see it straight or appreciate Django Unchained for like another 20 years in a way. It's almost right. too raw and too real. I think we have too many feelings about Tarantino right now to even see any of his films straight. And I think the one that we have the most trouble seeing is Django Unchained. And we talked about this in Pulp Fiction. You know, I think that that is in part because this is a film that uses the N-word a lot. And I think we don't trust him to use it because of the way that I feel like he fucked up profoundly in Pulp Fiction. Mm -hmm. And I mean this. And I think... All of that has kind of put this haze around Django Unchained where it's hard to appreciate the brilliant and complicated and dark and funny and magical movie this is. You know, I – ah, it's weird. I, I am always surprised that this winds up being one of my favorite Tarantino films. 
And yet every time I watch it, I think like his grasp of cinematography is perfect in this. I think the screenplay is amazing. I think it looks like a huge, big movie in a way that his films up until Inglorious Bastards didn't. And I just prefer this one because I think it is about something in the American psyche that we can't deal with properly. And I think he me- he deals with it in a really messy, shambling, bloody, chaotic, cathartic way. Like of all of his films that end in a giant bloody catharsis, I think this one is my favorite. You know, I think this is the catharsis we really need. And I think we don't want him to give it to us. And I think he hasn't quite shown that he earned it, but I think this film just does. You know, I think this film, I don't know. I pulled a clip. I pulled kind of a more comedic clip, um, a a clip again. Like, I think when we're talking about all these films from last decade, it is shocking to me that this clip would someday feel, you know, relevant again. But this is a clip about a group of KKK people who can't get their hoods on properly. We ready or what? Oh, hold on. I'm fucking with my hoes. Oh, oh, shit. Uh, just made it worse. Who made this goddamn shit? Well, it's wife. You make your own goddamn match. Look, nobody's saying they don't appreciate what Jenny did. Well, if all I had to do was cut a hole in a bag, I could have cut it better than this. What about yeah. you, Robert? Can you see? Not too good. I mean, if I don't move my head, I can see you pretty good, more or less. But when I start riding, the bag's moving all over, and I, I'm riding blind. I just made mine worse. Anybody bring any extra bags? No, nobody brought an extra bag. I'm just asking. Do we have to wear them when we ride? Oh, well, shit fire! If you don't wear them as you ride up, that just defeats the purpose. Well, I can't see in this fucking thing. I can't breathe in this fucking thing, and I can't ride in this fucking thing. Well, fuck all y'all. I'm going home. Now, I watched my wife work all day getting 30 bags together for you ungrateful sons of bitches, and all I can hear is criticize, criticize, criticize. From now on, don't ask me your mind for nothing. I mean, that's a great, uh, a great, great scene. And I think it just kind of shows also how, like, Tarantino is able to balance, like, a, like a, a fully comedic scene in a movie that, you know, that movie goes all over the place. I, I think the reason why I gravitated away from it simply was because of the the Western angle of it. Like, I know, I know it's not traditionally, it's not a Western per se, but it has elements of it. And I feel like, oh, and I think I, I put Westerns at an arm's distance. That's why I felt about True Grit. That's why I feel about this. I'm like, I, I've seen enough. I've seen enough Westerns on this list. Maybe there's a way to infuse something different. But I think visually this movie succeeds. Um I, if it was between Inglorious Bastards and this, I mean, I think people really view Inglorious Bastards as like his, you know, his real like triumph. But I, I think I enjoyed this one. I mean, it's a hard, it's a hard, they're right neck and neck to me. Yeah. I mean, I think, and this is a dark theory, and I'll, maybe I'll get yelled at or disagreed with for this. I think it's easier to like Inglorious Bastards because the good and bad on that is so oh, clearly defined. Absolutely. You know, I, I, it's just like, of course, we all hate Nazis. Of course. Um, and of course we're on like the side of the Americans and the, mm-hmm. yeah, but Django Unchained, I think is just, it's just, it's just really dark to have a character like Samuel L. Jackson, Stephen, I think that's a hard character just to exist, you know? And I think, I think that Samuel L. Jackson pulls off that character. I think the script earns that character. I think it is, oh, 
it's not uh, this film I think just messes with the audience more. Do you know what I think it's it's I, not it's it doesn't try it's not as easy to like. And I think I, in that way I respect it more. Hearing your point of view on this, I really never thought of the movie like that. I think I just took it a little bit more at face value and just accepted it. But I see how it is a little bit more complicated um than than that. Yeah, just him drilling into the American mythology. Uh, I don't know. I no. think it's like it's, an incredible Samuel Jackson performance. An incredible. I prefer this Christoph Waltz performance, honestly. To and I think he's great in Glorious Bastards too. But I think he's really miraculous here because this character is, I think, more complicated. Has a lot more shapes yeah. to him. And I think this Jamie Fox performance is just like. I think it's stunning. Def- I think. Oh, I mean, could you imagine what it would have been like if it was Will Smith? I mean, originally it was supposed to be Will Smith. He turned it down. He was kind of afraid to do something like this. It would have been really interesting to see him in this role. I think Jamie Foxx is one of his best performances. Um, and I think, you know, very vocally has said how Quentin Tarantino really broke him down to get to that level. It's a great thing. And, and this was definitely in my top three. My Quentin Tarantino list has been fluctuating because I really loved uh, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood so much. And as I get further away from it, the the thematic things that I see in it and how he did certain things to it, I I kind of see as a culmination of all these films. I think he's like playing with different ideas and stereotypes and and examining what it is to be a man, what it is to be in America, what America is and how we are kind of forgotten. It, 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 there's a lot of things at play. And I, I almost think each one of these is a building block on top of each other uh, with Hateful Eight oddly being an outlier. Hateful Eight seems to me like a play. Like it just seems like it, it like I feel like Inglorious Bastards, Django, and Once Upon a Time feel like part of a, a trilogy in some way. Maybe yeah. it is, you know, it's revisionist trilogy or something. I don't know. There's more. I don't know. I mean, I really like Hateful Eight too. They both of them just like when I picture like, Hateful Eight, I think of it as like if you took all of Twitter and distilled it to a black bile of goo, mm. that is the Hateful Eight. And I think he that's like also this mirror of everything unpleasant in America. And I respect that movie too. I think like I I paired Django and Hateful Eight together in my head in a way because I think these are the two movies that we will not like for the longest time. Do you know? I think these yeah. will take the longest time to be confident members of the top one, two, three, yeah. four of Tarantino films. And I think once they do, I don't. This is my pick for the future. I can see the list in 2050 having Django Unchained on it. All right. So I mean, my choice that I thought we were going to share the same mindset. I'm going to save for my second pick. Um, but there was a movie that I really loved this year. And I think not a lot of people have seen it. And I'm putting it out as something that should be on the list because I actually think it's a really well done film. And it's called End of Watch. Oh. Yeah. Have yeah. you ever seen that movie? I did see that movie. It's uh, Jake Gyllenhaal and Michael Pena. And it's directed by David Ayer. And it's about these two LA cops um, in on patrol in this dangerous area in Los Angeles. And it is a story that I feel like, you know, is a little bit ahead of its time in the sense it's about like, you know, there's body cams, there's an element of a body cam uh, thing going on here. It's, it's a really uh, smartly written, you know, like action thriller that I think is actually saying something. And I feel like we've gotten away from films like this. Like it doesn't necessarily hit you over the head, but I just think it's a well-acted, well-crafted movie that I wanted to bring some attention to. I'll even play you uh, a clip of it. All right. This is my day job. Uh, some, 
Sorry, bro, I'm recording. This is my day job. Uh, some of you might know me as Brian or uh, Taylor, but here I am, police officer two, Brian Taylor. Uh, this is where the forces of good prepare to fight the forces of evil. This is the department issue sidearm, Glock 19, a Spyderco tactical knife. This little thing can break windows here. <laughs> Two Smith & Wesson handcuffs. Can of OC spray. Pepper spray. Two extra mags. What else? That's my name tag here. Um, you can see my uh, partner's dirty locker. Yours um, is like a woman. Look at this. Mm. What is this, pottery barn? Here, are you gonna shut the fuck up and get ready for roll call? Dude, don't swear, man. I have to edit that out when you swear. Oh, fuck. Oh, shit, dude. Fuck, man. And so the whole movie is, you know, shot in this like documentary style based on the on the police cam. So you get this like really interesting point of view. And I know a lot of people love to talk about uh, the Denzel Washington, Ethan Hawke movie, Training Day. And I think that this movie uh, does something that is very similar to that, but also a lot more grounded. I don't know. I just think it's a really a really solid. I don't want to like spoil too much of it because there is there's a lot of like little uh, pieces of it, um, but it's a really solid film that I feel like is gone under the radar and and I'm just tossing it out to go on the list as a as a movie that I feel like didn't get enough love. I appreciate that you tossed that out. That is a really good movie, and I hadn't thought about it at all. <laughs> a very low budget, seven million dollar movie. You know, this is like a this is a tiny tiny movie. Yeah, Michael Pena, if I remember correctly, is awesome in that. I think yes. that's the movie where I really fell in love deeply with Michael Pena. And I was yeah. like, I'm going to watch everything Michael Pena does. I think this is also the movie that kind of switched me over on Jake Gyllenhaal, too. Like, I, I'm i always open to him, but I felt, this is a movie I felt like, oh, I found my my little film. I, I, liked, I liked it. There was something about this movie that just, like, really brought me into it. Yeah, and is, isn't Anna Kendrick in this movie, too? Yes, and she is. Yes, really she's awesome really good movie. in this. Frank Grillo is in this movie. David Harbour is in this movie. Uh, yeah, American Ferrara is in this movie. It's a, a really well put together film. Um, and you know, it's a movie that did well at the box office, made like $60 million, you know, a little bit under that. Um, but for a small film, and it was also a movie, this is, we talk about this, um, you know, where everyone was doing documentary style things like first person, you know, and this is, I thought really nailed it, told it in an interesting way. Like we got pulled into it with these like police cams and, and it was really well done. I really respect that pick. I oh, totally, I just realized in my head, I've had it confused with, is there, is there a film called Neighborhood Watch? Yes, that is another uh, film with Ben Stiller and Jonah Hill from your Django clip there. Uh, and uh, and that was a movie that I think was supposed to be like the Ghostbusters of our time. Like it's aliens and it's a neighborhood watch and it didn't quite uh, land in all those spots. Well, that is a very solid pick. Oh, thank you. Um I did not pick the film that I'm about to talk about for a second, but I was mm -hmm. very tempted to because this is a film that I love deeply. Mm -hmm. um, to me, this is my favorite cult film of 2012, and I'm so curious if you've seen it. Have you seen The Paperboy? No. <gasps> oh, I'm so excited to talk oh, about okay. The Paperboy. Um, the Paperboy is by Lee Daniels. Uh, okay. You know, Lee Daniels, yes. who did um, Precious. He did, um, what was the movie he did before that? That's so amazing. Shadow Boxer. Oh. Shadow Boxer was my first favorite cult movie of all time. Mm -hmm. And then he made The Paperboy. And then The Paperboy became my favorite cult movie of all time. Oh, wow. Uh, so what The Paperboy is about is it's this Southern Gothic. And you have um, Nicole Kidman, who comes to town as this woman who's obsessed with this man who's like a convict, played by John Cusack. Mm. And she wants the help of Matthew McConaughey to help get her like boyfriend out of jail, Matthew McConaughey and David Oyelowo. 
And um, meanwhile, she's like hanging out a lot with Zac Efron, who's this little kid who just has this big crush on her. He's a high school kid. And also um, his house help, who's played by Macy Gray, who is a terrific actress. And I'm always surprised that Macy Gray isn't in more movies because every time she's in a movie, she's one of the best parts of the movie. Anyway, this movie is mental. It's basically all about how Lee Daniels is in love with Zac Efron and just he's sweaty the whole time and in tidy whities and the camera's just staring at him. This is the best Nicole Kidman in a while because Nicole Kidman before this point had been doing a lot of like tedious Oscar-y things. Yes. She hadn't been fun in a while. This is the first fun Nicole Kidman, I think, since To Die For, really. She's insane. She's always wearing these tight little dresses. The first time where she sees John Cusack in person, they give each other an orgasm just by staring at each other with everyone else present. They just stare at each other's eyes and they breathe. And Lee Daniels is such a pervert that he not only shows you the wet spot on John Cusack's pants, but he shows you Matthew McConaughey adjusting his boner. I'm sorry. I I know that I'm sounding insane. But this movie is so distinctive. And the fact that Lee Daniels has this pattern he does where he's like, I'm going to make one respectable film. I'm going to make Precious. Then I'm going to make a trash masterpiece like The Paperboy. Then I'm going to make The Butler. And he just keeps going back and forth. So some days you take – some years you take him seriously as an Oscar contender. Other years you're like, oh, no, I love you. Anyway, I picked a scene of this to play for you because I love this movie so much. This is where Zac Efron goes in the water, gets stung by jellyfish, and um, the solution is, of course, as you know, the voice you hear at the end who's, like, really screaming, that's Nicole Kidman. What the fuck is that? Okay. Is he having an allergic reaction? No, a jellyfish thing or something? <laughs> jellyfish? See that fucking jellyfish? You're supposed to piss on a jellyfish thing. Uh, we're going to have to do something a little embarrassing here. you got to hang in there. Hey! Wait, you're going you're gonna to you say you're going to piss on him? What are you doing to him? Call an ambulance. Lady, what? He's having an allergic reaction. Got Shut the fuck up. Don't push me. You're supposed to piss Get on him. Get the fuck out of here. I can see this. I can see he's pointing. Like you don't push me. I will slap your face. I'll get the fuck out of here. Get the fuck out of here. Right? I'm going to call police. Said, I will kick your ass. Move it. Hi. If anyone's going to piss on him, it's going to be me. He don't like strangers peeing on him. Come on. Come on. Come on, baby. Come on. So I'm not saying that this movie deserves to be on the AFI list, but if there is a movie from 2012 that I have watched the most, it's definitely this movie. I love it. And now you've engaged me to go see it. I want to see this film. Oh my God, you're going to die. It's so amazing. I mean, really bring it to a group of people when you're having a movie night and they'll never talk to you again. It's the greatest movie ever. (laughs) But that is not the movie that I picked. The movie that I picked is a movie called Compliance by Craig Zobel. Oh, yeah. Do you remember this movie? Did you see it? I do. Yes. I saw it when it came out. Yes. Yeah, I mean, this is a movie that's based on a real-life crime that happened mm-hmm. in Kentucky. There was a man who would crank call restaurants, usually usually fast food restaurants, sometimes grocery stores, and he would convince whoever was on the phone that there was a woman in that building who had just committed a crime, and the person he was talking to was given the power by him, he was pretending to be a cop, to strip search that person and mentally torture them, abuse them, often sexually assault them. This guy just got his kicks calling people and convincing them to do bad things to people who were innocent. Anyway, this happened like 70 times. And this call and this film is based on one specific call that happened to a McDonald's in Kentucky. And it is just the story of this one restaurant. They call it a chick witch here. And you have Ann Dowd. You know, Ann Dowd has been like our great evil character actors yeah, lately. And so that good. is all traced back, I think, to this film. You know, this film was where everybody was just like, she is amazing at being terrifying. And yet she's terrifying in this really specific way. She's a woman who thinks she's just obeying orders, doing the right thing. And so this really small, super indie, claustrophobic movie 
is really about, you know, the human willingness to comply, to obey authority figures, to cede your power and what you contribute to an evil situation by saying somebody else told you to do it. Well, it's very much like that famous um, psychological study, right? Where, you know, when you'd press a button because someone told you, but you'd hear the scream in the other room, like, you know, that, that kind of idea, like, well, I'm just following orders. Exactly. This is a movie about people who are just following orders. And I, you know, when I was looking over everything from 2012, this is a great year. There are great things oh. in this year. And yet this is the movie I kept coming back to, Compliance. I feel like this movie is really important. And I don't know. Anyway, here's a clip of the caller on the phone. And you'll hear him talking to Ann Dowd and also Juma Walker, who plays the teen girl who's captured. This isn't the easy way out of this. You understand? What What can I Just do? How can I help? Back like... on, but... You need to do what she tells you, okay? I mean, yeah, of course. Of course I'm going to do what she tells me to, and I'm going to do what you tell me to. That's fine, but... Okay. Put put Sandra back on the phone, please. All right. Hello? Hi, Sandra. Uh, I'll need your help so I can get down there. We really have two choices here. Okay, what do you need? We need to find the money, but I want to make this as easy as possible for Becky. Wouldn't you agree? Yes, I would. So that's the first thing. And in this situation, either, and I don't like this, we drag her downtown, we book her, we process her, we put her in a holding cell where she'll probably be all night. That seems Um, very extreme. Yeah. I mean, I think in order to keep this sort of contained, what we could do is just have you strip search her right now. Wow, that really makes me lean forward and not want to stop watching it. I think it's so hard to do a film where someone's on the phone, but when it's done so well, and you think of those examples like, you know, Scream, uh, you know, the opening sequence in Scream and these these moments where you can re- – like you you are you are the person on the phone in a weird way. It, it, by not seeing that face, it really – I don't know if it connects you more or it just – it makes you more uh, vulnerable. I don't know. There's something about a phone, that voice. Yeah, you don't really see the guy on the phone very much, um, but it's it's a Pat Healy, that great character actor, yeah. does the voice work in it. And I don't know, this film just stuck with me. Like when this film debuted at Sundance, people freaked out. People were screaming at the Q and A. They were mad. They were angry. People were applauding. One guy was like, "I liked seeing the girl naked. You looked hot." And everybody in the audience got mad at him. Whoa. Like it, this movie. I don't. Know, it just lingers. It just lingers. And so I wanted to bring it back up again because I think that this movie matters. And also, Craig Zobo, who directed it and also wrote it, is the coolest. And he's the one who wrote and directed that movie, The Hunt, that got canceled this yes. year. And I think we are missing on something really powerful because Craig Zobel's a talented guy, and I want to see what he would have done with that Hunt movie. I love that. Talking about somebody who I always like to see what they do with a film uh, is Sam Mendes. Now, I'm not going to put this on the list, but I wanted to just call out Skyfall this year as being – a really great, visually stunning Bond film. And, you know, there's been all this debate, not to keep on bringing back to Marvel, but like this idea of like, what can you bring to a franchise that, you know, like the Bond franchise is a franchise that is, you know, plug and play. And 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 I think when a when the Bond franchise gets uh, you know, this shot of a of a good director, I I love I just love the look of Skyfall. And I just wanted to talk about that for a second. I think it's visually one of the best looking James Bond films. It's uh, beautiful. Yeah, it really, it really, really is uh, fantastic. I think all the time about like what he's walking through 
the room with all the glass yes. walls and everything's yeah. being reflected on it. Oh, it's oh. so gorgeous. And that's also the film where he's like going to Shanghai and the beautiful reds. And it, it's a it's a beautiful, beautiful film, really well done and makes the disappointing nature of Spectre all the worse because I think you were like, oh, finally we're in good hands. And then Spectre was uh, kind of a, a, a clusterfuck. Yeah. Not terrible, but not great. I will say OPI did a line of James Bond nail polishes and uh, the Skyfall is a beautiful color. It's like cool. a dark brown red. Loved I like it. that. I own it. I, I used it on my toes. Well, I have to say that, you know, someone swayed me. Someone who was on this podcast swayed me about my 2012 pick and that would be, and this is what I thought you were going to say, The Master. You know, and, and you know, I think my immediate gut is always PT, does it go, do we do Boogie Nights, There Will Be Blood. But thinking about this movie a little bit more, it's like maybe this takes all the elements that I like of PT Anderson films and puts them into one. Like I think there's some really interesting, big, larger-than-life characters, and that's from Boogie Nights. And I, then I also think there's just some intense drama from like There Will Be Blood. And there is this quality to the story that – is so kind of layered, but also so focused on so few characters. You know, Magnolia, I think, is a beautiful film that kind of has a, such a wide scope. You know, Inherent Vice, I think, had elements of this. And we talked about this a lot in the last episode with Ryan Johnson. I don't want to belabor it. But I was really thinking about this film. And I was like, oh, this is a film with a great Philip Seymour Hoffman uh, performance yeah. and a great Joaquin Phoenix performance. Both of them do... Great jobs always, but there's something about the two of them together and Amy Adams. Like it's, it's a great, it's a great movie. And like the social network, it is talking about something that is a part of our society. And because it's not directly Scientology, it also is able to comment on the cult of personality and the idea of being wanting to be a part of a group and and following along and, and the idea of like how these kind of an organization gets started. I, I think it it says a lot without it being um without it being autobiographical. I think it does a really great job of like telling a story. And and I really uh Ryan Johnson talking about it and me kind of revisiting it and looking at the list, I'm like, I think this is the movie. Right now, that is my leading PT movie. Wow. Yeah. That's that's what I'm putting on the list. And, and uh, I'll, I'll play another clip. I know we played a clip from it last week. I'll play a clip of it here. This battle has been with you from before you know. This is not you. Shut the fuck up! It's not you. Shut the fuck up! It's not you. You are asleep. Your spirit was free. Moving from body to the next body. Free. Free for a moment. Then it was captured by an invader force bent on turning you to the darkest way. You've been implanted with a push-pull mechanism that keeps you fearful of authority and destructive. We are in the middle of a battle that's a trillion years in the making, and it's bigger than the both of us. You're making this shit up. You made this shit up. You don't know what you're talking about. I don't know what I'm talking about. No, you don't. I give you facts. They don't give they me are not facts. facts. What facts? They are fucking facts. facts. What facts? Fuck you. I mean, I do love the idea of this this ensemble just raising each other's game. Yeah. Like, there's something in me. I keep toggling back and forth between Boogie Nights and Magnolia as my favorite. Oh, yeah. 
But it, honestly, almost every time you mention a film, I'm like, yes, that one, except for yeah. the blood because because I'm evil. But but yeah, I mean, and also Ryan was of course way too humble and lovely of a person to ever mention it. But his Looper came out that year, yes. and I am a huge fan of Looper. Love Looper, great yeah. film. But I think when you get these these movies where you get like two actors raising each other up, it it is or challenging each other. Like it, it breeds a good thing. Like we talked about like Dustin Hoffman and John Voight really kind of going at it in Midnight Cowboy. And I think that that elevates the movie, you know, and I feel like you have this kind of energy. It, it has this uncomfortable energy of two powerhouse actors, arguably at the height. I mean, and Joaquin Phoenix is still doing great stuff, but they are just clashing so hard. And the movie is fueling that clash I don't know. There was something about it that I was like, oh, I, I, I want that performance to be, or that pairing to be immortalized. I like that. I'm, I, I'm listening to that argument. I'm open. I'm, my mind is open, just yeah. like I'm a protege of yours. <laughs> I, suppose, I don't know. I like that. Yeah, I, I feel like I've been so negative on my last couple of movies. They've all been so dark. Mm. I mean, not that this is a, this is not a light film. I mean, by any stretch of the imagination, but it's. There is something really fun about this movie. I would rewatch this movie without a doubt. It's not a it's a heavy movie, but it doesn't make you feel dead at the end. <laughs> I mean, if I was going to name something sort of cheerful that came out this year, it this would never go on the list in any kind of shape yeah. or capacity, but 21 Jump Yes, Street. I was going to bring that up too. You thought you were going to say 21 Jump Street? Well, it was a movie that I thought, I was like, again, I'm always gravitating towards certain comedies, but I'm also, I don't want to give you a little tidbit. I'm, I'm saving my Lord Miller for a little bit later. Oh, all yeah. right. Uh, but I, I think 21 Jump Street, great example of a solid, solid comedy. Yeah, the ascendance of the Lord of Miller brand in the last decade has been, I think, one of the greatest gifts. Well, I mean, look, we talked about it last year for our Academy Awards special. Like, what may be the film that exists, you know, for years to come? Maybe it is Spider-Verse. I don't know. You know, as an animated film that tells a story that's a little bit different, you know, animation styles, I don't know even now as we've gotten farther away from it, if I still feel that way, but there's something really interesting about what they've done and, and how they continue to to make their films and the trajectory of their career from Cloudy with a Chance of Meatballs, you know, Clone High, to this is, I mean, this movie is a great movie. It's a great movie. It's a really great movie. I mean, this is part of the Channing tatum Oh, the yeah. Chanisance? <laughs> I love it. All right, well, Amy, this is good. We kind of broke through our first uh, swath of years here with a bunch of great choices, and it's made me just want to watch more movies. Uh, I am excited to continue this conversation with you and with the people listening at home because we'll be hearing from you about your picks of your movie of the decade uh, in our final episode, our third episode. You can always give us a call on our voicemail at 747-666-5824 and let us know what your movie of the decade is. Amy and I have not decided our movie of the decade yet. We're just talking about a bunch of them. We should get them in some sort of, you know, uh, final four-esque bracket and then have them fight each other because that's what art should do. Fight <laughs> to the death. We should. And you know what, Paul? You didn't ask me if any of these movies had Simpsons. Um, oh, wow. The answer is I don't think really any of them do, but I found a couple Simpsons I wanted to just play all at once because I think... They allude to things. Okay. Um, the first one is from an episode called Lona Lisa, where we meet a person we've talked about today. Um, the second one is from an episode called Lisa the Skeptic. That's going to tie into Lars Van Trier. And the third one is uh, a very short, short, short gag. And I'll just, uh, I feel bad. I'm not even going to say it. You'll just know. Why, look, it's Mark Zuckerberg, the founder of Facebook. 
Mr. Zuckerberg, I'm Lisa, and this is Nelson. Sup, Zuck? Mark Zuckerberg is happy to meet new friends. That's great, Mr. Zuckerberg, but I was hoping you could tell us how education was instrumental to your success. Well, the truth is, I dropped out of Harvard. You did? Better earning than learning. Hell yeah. I'll get the best kind of degree. Honorary, baby. Will you leave me alone? It's bad enough you're making me go to your stupid judgment day. Please, Lisa. I don't know exactly what's going to happen, but I really wish we could make peace before sunset. Nothing is going to happen, Mom. I hate to disappoint you, but the world is not coming to an end. Well, shall we sing a hymn? Uh, Dear my God to thee, maybe? Or, or, or Amazing Grace? No. Well, pre-dinner entertainment. Most haven't. Is Oliver there? Who? Oliver, close off. Hold on, I'll check. Oliver, close off. Call for Oliver, close off. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm really sorry. I feel so bad. <laughs> I love it. I love it all. It's great. And that's really, you know, you really elevated compliance with that. Uh-huh. Okay, well, now that I am cringing at uh, my own my own Simpsons clip, uh, we will talk to you guys next week. We're going to be doing the years 2013, 2014, and 2015. Yes. Cannot wait. Cannot wait. Cannot wait.